Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of your Son, Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that as we walk through now, as we study through the book of Matthew, we thank you for the insight and the truth and the the absolute foundation you give us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, we praise you, Lord Jesus, for your words that are spoken. For for the things that, that you said. It's so exciting, Jesus, to to be, as it were, with those sitting at your feet, listening, and taking in your teachings, and hearing those words that, that rolled right off of your lips. Lord Jesus, I pray those words would not roll on by us, but would find a home in our hearts today. And that we would have a deeper understanding of the plan that you have for us, of what you have in store, and of where we are right now. That we might live the lives you've called us to, And Holy Spirit, I ask again that You would be our teacher this morning. And speak truth into our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this morning, I want to start with a party. Matthew has just made a career move, not to gospel writer. That will come later. He's taken a new job as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Matthew, the one who wrote this gospel... And he's so excited about his new position that he throws a great big celebration. It's even more a reception. It's a meet and greet for his new boss, Jesus. If you look back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and with his disciples. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 2, verse 15, that it happened that while he was reclining at the table in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. This is a whole new thing. Something has happened here that has upset the balance of rabbinical teaching in Jesus' day. So the rabbis would go out and they would choose their students. They would say, I'd like you to come and be my student. How about you? And oftentimes, those who would be students of a rabbi would present their case as if they were you know, applying for college. And they come to the rabbi and they say, you know, this is why I'd love to follow you and hear my credentials and here's where I've studied so far and I'd really like to be one of your students. Well, Jesus goes out of the way to pick people that are normally not chosen for this kind of thing. And we see that in Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus comes up to Matthew and says, Hey, I want you to come follow me. And it was absolutely radical. It was a bizarre thing to do. Matthew's so excited about it, he accepts the call and he invites Jesus to a party, a reception in his home, and all the sinners and tax collectors are showing up. And they're all gathering around because for the first time, the people who are the outsiders, the fringe of society, are able to say, Wow, he wants us. We're part of this. This rabbi has something to say to us. Now, Jesus didn't give a watered-down message. The truth was no less important, no less sound, no less absolute than it would have been with any other rabbi. In fact, I would say more so. But in the way Jesus delivered the truth, and the people that he sought out, we see that there were those all around him, sinners, tax collectors, people who had messed up and blown their lives, people a lot like us, who are able to sit now at the feet of Jesus and go, wow, I can be here and it's alright. I can be part of this and that's okay. I didn't have to be cleaned up and perfect. That's something Jesus is doing? You'll do that for me, Lord? You'll work in me? That's awesome. 
Luke 5.29 says, Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, I love this because what we see happen here is a purposeful party. The Matthew doesn't go through training in evangelism to determine how to reach his lost friends. No one showed him the protocol of evangelical outreach or how to knock on doors. The truth is, Matthew himself was on that very fringe of society. And so when his life was changed by Jesus, he told the people closest to him about it. He invited those closest to him to his house. Come on in, you've got to meet this guy. It's so wonderful what's happening. I don't know if he invited his drinking buddies, his swindling buddies. I don't know. We know the people he hung out with, sinners. So there had to be something going on there. But there were three reactions to Matthew's party and to Matthew's invitation to all of his friends to be there and to meet Jesus. The sinners were gathering cheerfully. Because as I said before, for the first time, there's a place for sinners at the feet of God. Well, there had always been a place for sinners at the feet of God. That's what the sacrifices were for. But the people had forgotten that. And the Jewish leaders, and the religious stuffed shirts of the day, were saying you have to be such and such to be able to be around God. So the common people were not. But, but Matthew sees this, so the sinners are cheerfully gathering, they're having a great time, and the Pharisees were grumbling critically. Verse 11 tells us, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Who's heard of such a thing? A rabbi with this rabble. Why would you do this? But there was a third group of people trying to understand what was going on. While the sinners were gathering cheerfully, and the Pharisees were grumbling critically, the disciples of John were grasping curiously. The disciples of John, they come up, and in verse 14, they come to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, some commentators look at this, and they say the disciples of John were being arrogant, and they were kind of lumped in with the Pharisees. I don't think so. I think they were asking a legitimate question. These disciples of John the Baptist, they had been with John in the wilderness. They had walked with him. They saw his ministry. It was austere. It was serious. There was no drinking. In fact, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. No cutting of the hair. No touching dead things. And they saw this man and they followed him. They were patterning patterning themselves after him. And here comes Jesus, who John points to. Jesus is the one to follow. And these disciples of John are checking him out. But he's at a party. And he's hanging out with the wrong kind of people. What's the deal here? Why is it that the Pharisees fast and and, and we fast, but your disciples don't fast? Well, honestly, John's disciples couldn't actually have known whether Jesus and his disciples fasted or not. That's not something that would have been evident because Jesus had said before, when you fast, keep it to yourself. You don't show everybody that you're fasting. Back in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 16, Jesus said, whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. They neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And there's a key here to spiritual living, gang. And that is anything that might exalt you before man should be done in secret. Anything that might bring honor or glory to your name in the presence of other people is something really that ought to be between you and the Lord. Only those things that bring glory to God the Father 
are the things that we want people to see us doing. That's the way Jesus was. When people saw Jesus' miracles, they glorified the God who was in heaven. They praised God. Over and over again and again, we see that in the Scriptures, and they glorified the God of Israel. Because Jesus had a way of doing things that did not attract the attention to Himself, but to God. The people who knew who the power was, where it was coming from. Sad thing about fasting, you Bible students may know that fasting was supposed to represent humility before God. That was kind of the idea. To humble yourself, to focus on God. But what began as a posture of humility had by now become a position of respectability. We studied this a few weeks back. The Pharisees saw fasting as a fast track to holiness. Let's make this one of the things we do, one of the religious requirements that we keep. And we'll do this thing and show everybody how holy we are. Every Monday and every Thursday, the Pharisees fasted. And everybody knew it. They could see in their faces. They could see in their demeanor. You could just imagine a Pharisee walking down the street with some friends and going, Hang on a second, guys. Whew, got a little lightheaded. There's fast day, you know. <laughs> but Isaiah said in Isaiah 58, verse 5, Is it a fast like this which I choose, the Lord speaking, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose, God says, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? That's a good reason to fast, when there's not enough for you because you've given it away. To bring the homeless poor into the house, and when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break out like the dawn. But the religious leaders, even some of John the Baptist's own disciples, had forgotten this. So Jesus responds to the question of fasting with an intriguing answer. Verse 15. Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom... Let's try that word again. (laughs) The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn. As long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? In other words, the bridegroom's here. The groom is here in a pre-wedding feast, in a joyful visitation, hanging out, and my disciples should be joyful because I am here with them. I'm right here. My followers are filled with joy. That's why they don't fast. That's why you don't see them fasting. Because they're filled with joy. But he goes on to say the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. What days are those? Some have mistakenly uh, interpreted this as the days in which we live. The bridegroom's not here. These are days of fasting, mourning, hardship, struggle, difficulty. But we're going to make it somehow. In this wearisome, hard, upsetting life. You know, it just amazes me. Christians should be the most joyful people in all the world. Because the bridegroom is with us. The bridegroom is present in us. Jesus Christ is here, gang. Yes, He's coming back in the flesh, in person. But right now, His Spirit is with us such that He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the very end of the age. We have no business fasting out of mourning. Not that we can't fast, that's great. But not to mourn. 
Well, so what's Jesus talking about? He said the day is coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And on a Thursday night, a couple of years after this point, Jesus would gather his apostles for the final meal, the Passover meal. Watch what happens. John chapter 16 and verse 16. John 16, verse 16. Jesus is with the guys and they're about to have the meal and it's been a dark night. Something about His teaching. Something about the things that Jesus is saying. And you can read it for yourself. John 14, 15, and 16. As Jesus is talking to the guys and He's preparing them for what's about to happen. You and I know what's about to happen. He's going to be taken away prisoner and crucified. Well, they're not sure and they're trying to figure this out and they're upset by his demeanor and by what's going on. Judas has already left to go on some errand and that was a dark moment. No one's sure really what happened there. And Jesus says, in a little while, verse 16, you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. They're confused. And so Jesus knew that they wished to question him, verse 19. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And the moment the grief was turned into joy, gang, it was, it was when the apostles saw Him. On that Sunday, resurrected. That following week, they would see Jesus and their grief would be turned to joy. And that's why, that's why the apostles lived lives that ended up in martyrdom. That's why the church exploded and grew and spread. Because there was joy there. Not because there was mourning. Not because there was grief. The sinners are gathering cheerfully. The Pharisees are grumbling critically. John's disciples, they're grasping curiously and Jesus begins to grant clarity into what was until then a great mystery. Now, this is all background. They ask the question, to fast or not to fast? And Jesus answers the question, but He gives them far more than what they were asking. His answer has far greater and far-reaching implications. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 9. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away and the garment from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Maybe you've heard this text used to prove that a church needs to get rid of him. Or possibly you've heard a preacher preach out of this passage to try and get rid of the pews that are so impeding the growth as a church. Or maybe a pastor has stood up in a previous church situation and you've heard him read this passage and say, see, we've got to be open to change. It's got to be about change. We have to stay relevant to the culture. We have to go where the culture's going. One of the latest things I heard recently out of the emerging church movement regarding homosexuality is let's give it four or five years and see where it goes. What? Well, let's see what culture does with it. Where culture stands with it. And then we'll make our decision based on that. Gang, I don't make my decision based on culture. We make our decisions based on the truth of the Word of God. That's the only clear foundation for me. Otherwise, we are like ships tossed to and fro on the waves of the sea. 
amazing to me. Let's see what happens. I'll tell you what's going to be happening in four or five years. It's going to be worse. It's going to be more messed up. There's going to be more heartache and heartbreaks. More lives lost. That's what's going to happen. Well, people have taken this verse and they say, well, Jesus is just talking about change, right? No, I think we are selling Jesus short if we think the wineskins and the clothing is just about change. The reality is here, gang, the implication is a new dispensation. Jesus is introducing something that has not been known before. Something absolutely amazing. A new dispensation. What's a dispensation? Let me give you a little bit of explanation here. I think you need to understand this before we go on. So let's step into Theology 101. We have covered a lot of ground over the last five years. It's been fun to do it, starting in Genesis and teaching through, and we just finished Second Kings, and now we've jumped ahead to Matthew. But in the Hebrew Scriptures alone, by the time we hit Second Kings, you may not have realized it, but we covered five dispensations in God's economy. Okay, dispensation, economy... God in the stock market, what are you talking about? Both these words, dispensation and economy, are words that we get from a single word in the Greek New Testament, oikonomia. And oikonomia literally means the management of a household. God's economy, gang, is simply God's modus operandi, His mode of operation, how He does things. His way of revealing Himself to mankind. His way of moving and working in this world. And it has been different in different seasons. That's what it means to say a dispensation. There have been different dispensations. Just a big theological word to say different seasons in the way that God has shown Himself to people. That's pretty basic. I don't know why we come up with words like dispensation, but we do. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, tells us, "...having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He has purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him." I'm sure you fully understand dispensationalism now. Let's go a little further. Colossians 1.25 says, "...of this church..." I was made a minister according to the stewardship or dispensation, according to the dispensation from God bestowed on me, Paul says, for your behalf, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. (laughs) Do you understand? Because we get into Paul's writing sometime, and even Peter says, Paul's tough to understand. I don't get him. I'd rather talk about fishing. I can do that, you know. (laughs) Here's what's going on, gang. A dispensation refers to the way the Lord chooses or chose to manage His household in a certain period of time across history. That's pretty simple. There are roughly seven distinct dispensations or time frames in which God presented Himself or worked through men in a certain way. Let me give you some examples. Maybe this will help. We have the dispensation of the Mosaic Law. That is through the law of Moses. God chose to to reveal Himself to the world through a people, the people of Israel. And He chose Moses to be the deliverer of that people and to bring the law so that they would see His perfection. And so the law was a season, a dispensation, where the Lord revealed Himself in a very specific way. Well, following that, we have the dispensation of grace. We'll talk about that in just a second. We know another dispensation is coming. You can call it the dispensation of the kingdom. The millennial kingdom that the Bible very literally talks about, this thousand year reign of Christ, where He will rule and reign from Jerusalem in the world in person for a thousand years. Fantastic, amazing, 
Read your Bible. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 7 tells you all about it. So, Rick, are you saying at the bridge you want people to be dispensationalists? No. Because I really don't care for any particular label except for the disciple whom Jesus loves. That's a good one to wear. You're going to have any badge in your belief system or your theology. Don't say that I am of this church or that church or this framework of thinking or that framework of thinking. Just say, I'm of Jesus. That's where my heart is. It's with Him. There are a lot of theological camps out there that can bore and distract us from the main thing. And Paul even writes about this. Check this out. 1 Timothy 1.3 Paul tells Timothy, young pastor, he says, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than to the administration, oikonomia, dispensation, of God which is by faith. Don't spend your time on these endless genealogies, these myths, these bizarre doctrines, these different ways of thinking. He says, rather focus on the dispensation of God which is through faith. Paul says, but the goal of our instruction is this. Now hear me clearly. We do a lot of through the Bible teaching at the bridge. Every Sunday morning, we're going through the Word. Every Wednesday night, even more so, we're going verse by verse. We're instructing in the Word. It's important and it's purposeful. But you need to understand the goal of our instruction, Paul says, is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's why we teach. That's why we're in the Word. Love. It is not about knowledge, which the Bible tells us puffs up. It's not about being more righteous because you know a few more verses than your brother or sister over here knows. It is about love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the most important thing. Not banding together like a bunch of kids playing capture the flag to protect our position. The goal of our instruction is love. So why would you take the time to talk about dispensationalism or this dispensation of God? Because Paul did. Because Paul said that there's a great value in our being aware of the dispensation of God, which is by faith. In other words, knowing where we are in the Lord. Knowing our place in history, which I think is incredibly important for a Christian. Knowing I don't walk in the days of the law. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me tell you something else here. The wonder and depth of the mystery that Jesus is actually revealing here in Matthew chapter 9. This will blow your mind. There's a mystery here. A mystery far deeper than just new wine and change. It's, it's more than that. The mystery, I'm going to give you three things, is grace. Number one. The mystery of grace. Jesus said, No one puts a patch of unstrung cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put wine, new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are Ruined. You can't sew the fabric of grace over the garment of the old law any more than you can sew new denim onto old blue jeans. Because it's going to tear. You can't pour the fresh and potent wine of grace into the old wineskin of the law because the wineskin of the law is stretched already. And those gases and those things in, in, the, in, the, in the new wine, it'll expand and, and burst the wineskins. Jesus is pointing out a difference here, gang, between two dispensations. One, a dispensation of law. Two, the dispensation of grace. And he's saying, this is what's happening before you. There's new wine here. There are new clothes. For the law, John 1.17 tells us, was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now understand this. 
The law, like old jeans and old wine, is still good. So my favorite jeans, I have a ripped pair at home. They're just thrashed. And they're so comfy. And I love to wear them. And if I found out one day that Cheryl threw those jeans out because they were just too ratty and they were just disgusting or too much, I would be disgusted. Because my old jeans are good. But I need the new jeans every now and then too. I mean, I've got to have something to preach in, right? Understand that old wine is good. Not bad. It's just being replaced now by a new wine. And in the same way, the law is perfect. The Bible tells us, Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And someone could say, yeah, but Rick, that's Old Testament anyway. No, it's actually it's the Psalms. So it's the Hebrew Scriptures, but it's not the Old Law. Just talking about the Old Law and saying it is absolutely perfect. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.11, these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're in this dispensation, the dispensation of grace. We're not a part of the dispensation of law, but I'll tell you what, we can learn from that. It's there for a reason. In fact, Paul said in Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now the faith has come. We're no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That verse was quoted to me when I was a kid to say the old law is irrelevant. And that's a misquotation. The old law was my tutor to bring me to Christ, to show me that I needed Christ. Therefore, the old law is good. Because it brought me to that realization. There is value there. It's like my... My junior first, now it's my first grade teacher, Miss Basil. For years, I may have mentioned to you all that I labored under the delusion that there was junior first and first grade. That there were two, you know, because I went twice. (laughs) My parents had me convinced until about six months ago when I started to figure it out. First grade, junior first. But my first grade teacher, junior first did not go so well for me. The second time around, I was amazed at how many things I already knew. And my teacher's name was Miss Basil. Miss Basil, in all of my elementary school career, is my favorite teacher. I remember her to this day because she was the first one who started encouraging me and believing in me. And telling me that I could do things. And telling me that I was a smart kid as opposed to a smart aleck. That she was the one that, that brought me into a new, uh, really a new awareness of myself. She doesn't live with us now and continue to instruct me. Because she was for that period of my life. But thanks to her, I can actually say thanks to her, there was impact that happened in that year of my life that I wear today. So you all that are teachers, would you be encouraged? You are making a massive difference. So Miss Basil did that for me. She was like the old law. She was my tutor to bring me to a certain point. In the same way, the old law is our tutor. It's good. It's perfect. It's reliable. It is the Word of God. And 1 Timothy 1 verse 8 says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. Listen to me. Paul said the law is not made for a righteous person. Guess what? If you've given your life to Jesus, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are a righteous person. And therefore, you're not under the law anymore. 
You're under grace. You are saved and washed and cleansed by Jesus. And when you're presented before the Father, you are presented as perfect and righteous. Because Jesus fulfilled the law in our place. Paul says the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Because again, it highlights how sinful we truly are. Well, Jesus introduced a new garment to replace the old. He says there's a new garment here, a robe of righteousness that now replaces the rags of rebelliousness. Isaiah hinted at this, although I don't believe he fully understood even what he was saying. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom, note that, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. What did Jesus just say had happened? He just said the bridegroom is with them. And now all of a sudden He goes from saying the bridegroom is with them, now He's talking about a new kind of garment. That is not by accident, my friends. Jesus was purposeful and perfect in every single thing that He said and did. You're going to see even more of that in just a second. But I think He's drawing back to this very thing. Isaiah saying, He's clothed me with a robe of righteousness. Yeah, but Isaiah, how am I supposed to do this? How is it to be done? By keeping the law? That's all Isaiah could hand anybody. As a prophet, 700 years before Christ, all Isaiah could say was, Do your best. You want to wear that robe of righteousness? Man, show up for all the sacrifices. Make sure you follow the law to the T. Live out your life the best that you can. Man, do everything the way God prescribed it. But there's an air of hopelessness there because every thinking Jew would know, I can't do that. I I was sick on Rosh Hashanah last year and missed it. I wasn't able to be there for Yom Kippur. One slip up like that and the great pumpkin will pass you by. That's the thinking though that came with the law. The best you could do was the best you could do. And you would still fall short. So how am I supposed to get this robe of righteousness? Isaiah wouldn't have known it. Jesus knew it by grace. The mystery is grace. The mystery is God doing something you cannot do for yourself. Jesus, by the way, didn't come to rip up the law. That's what happens when we try and sow grace on top of the law. While we try to keep the law while saying we're saved by grace, we tear up the law. Jesus didn't say, well, the law didn't work out so well, so let's give this grace thing a whirl. Let's go to plan B. I said this before, there's no plan B with God. There's only one plan. And it's the same plan He's been working out since day one. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The reality is, gang, though the law is good, though the law is perfect, grace is greater. Because grace allows us to walk having kept the law, Jesus keeping the law for us. But some people still cling to the old ways. The Pharisees were an example of this. They wanted to cling to the law, to hold on to it. In Luke's version of this same parable, the wineskins, Luke says that Jesus said, Luke 5.38, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says the old's good enough. We talked about good enough mentality last week. Good enough. The old is good enough for me. What do I want the new thing for? The old is just fine. Now, if you were a wine snob, you might say Jesus, your metaphor, has flaws. Because the truth is, old wine is better. 
And speaking literally, I suppose it is. The old wine is the better wine. The old wine has fermented longer. The old wine has the ability of taking on the oaky finish. You know, I, I don't know how they <laughs> figure these things with a hint of currants. You know, but the old wine is supposed to be the better wine, and yet Jesus is coming along and saying, hey, i got new wine for you. So there's a problem with your, your metaphor, Jesus. Old wine's better, right? I mean, I see your point. But what was Jesus' first miracle? You turn the water to wine. Turn in your Bibles over to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, this is Mary, said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? I didn't write this. Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now watch this. By the way, those of you who have Catholic friends... Point this out to them. This is the last recorded words. These are the last recorded words of Mary we have in the scriptures. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I like that. Whatever he says, you do that. Well, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the wine, the water which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servant who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people are drunk, which is literally what it says there, then he serves the poorer wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. How old was Jesus' wine? Seconds at best? This was the freshest possible wine, and yet it was better than the best that they had to serve at the wedding feast. Jesus' new wine was better than the old wine. His new wine is the best wine. The wine of Jesus is the wine of grace. It just cracks me up, the way this whole thing is written. And by the way, I don't think that this is, this is some kind of a, a referendum on drinking. I don't don't believe that you can use this passage and say one way or the other that either Jesus is for drinking or against it. That's not what this passage is about. That is not why the very first miracle that Jesus performs in Canaan Galilee was water to wine so that we could debate about drinking. How stupid is that? How superficial are we when we take things like Scripture and and we look and go, well, obviously Jesus had the best wine so we should be able to drink all we want. Or, well, yeah, but it was watered down wine, not not like what we drink today. I mean, round and round and round... And Satan's laughing his head off because we're missing the power that the picture is grace. Why would Jesus change water to wine? The same reason he later would say that no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the, and the wine pours out. New wine. I want you to see something here. Now the apostles would be sitting there with Jesus in the house at Matthew's, having the party, and Jesus makes this comment, and I guarantee you, at least one of them had to be sharp enough to realize that's the first miracle he did. New wine. And it was the best wine. 
So what he's talking about here, man, I'm not sure, but it's something better than where we are. It's something better that's coming. The mystery of grace. Second thing to note about this, and it's bound up in that mystery of grace, and it's the mystery of the church. It's the mystery of the new dispensation of the church. At times you've heard it called the church age. At other times, maybe the age of grace. The church is the mystery, and gang, it was unrecognized before. Before Jesus came on the scene, literally before Pentecost happened, and the Spirit came on the apostles, and the church began to spread out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. Until that point, it was not understood in God's will. It was a mystery. Listen to this. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, As to this, your salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now you can see this. Guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're getting words from God. They're being told to say and to write certain things. And as they say these things and write these things, they've got to be going... What does this mean? How does this fit? I'm going to tell them you said this, Lord, but I don't understand. And Peter says, that's because it was a mystery. It was not yet revealed to them. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, so even the angels didn't know about the mystery of the church. They didn't know what was going to happen. Now, consider the brilliance of this on God's part. I'm going to give them the law in the dispensation of Moses. And I'm going to show them that they can't be good enough. I'm going to reveal that very clearly to them. Then I'm going to put on flesh myself. I'm going to come down and walk among them, show them who I am, what I'm like. And, and at this point, the angels are going, yeah, great, cool. And then God says, and the rest is a mystery. Oh, come on, Lord! Tell us what you're going to do. But God knew that I'm going to die on a cross. And everybody's going to be shocked. And three days later, I'm going to rise again, which will be more shocking. Forty days after that, I'm going to ascend to heaven, which is even more shocking still. Until Jesus poured His Holy Spirit out on the church and suddenly, the new dispensation of grace happens. Now the word is being spread faster than it could possibly have been spread by a carpenter in Galilee. Now it's being spread by people all over the world. People who are not living in days of fasting and mourning, but days of joy and expectation. Now the church is alive and we're in the new age of grace that no one knew was coming. It's absolutely stunning how God worked all of this out. We now stand in this dispensation, the dispensation of grace. By the way, I think it's winding down. I do. I'll give you one little example. Sean came up to me after the first hour and showed me an issue of Popular Science, November of 2008. And he said, check this out. There was a chart there, a graph, that showed from 1950, in about 1950, worldwide national disasters annually were less than 200 in the world. As of 1990... Worldwide national or natural disasters, so-called natural disasters, are over 1,600. In those years, if you graph that, the graph goes like this. Something's different right now. I think things are winding down, or maybe we could say winding up. 
that we're coming to the end of a dispensation. But we are in right now the dispensation of grace, which means our message to the world is a message of love and grace and forgiveness, not judgment and condemnation. Love and grace. That's the role of the church, and it's the mystery of the church. This, this mystery, I've shared this before, I think it's a great example, the mystery of the two mountains. If you were to stand south of Mount Rainier and, and look at Mount Rainier and look toward Mount Baker, with Mount Baker directly behind, or maybe just off to the left of Mount Rainier, from your perspective, Mount Baker and Mount Rainier might look like the same mountain. might look like kind of a, a continuation. Or, or at best, it would look like one is pretty much right behind the other. Until you get up to the top of Mount Rainier and you notice there's a vast valley in between these two mountains. That's the mystery of the church. From the Jewish perspective, they could look at the mountain of Moses. They could look at the mountain of the law. And behind it, there's another mountain back there. Oh, that's the kingdom. The eternal kingdom. It's right there. It's right behind the mountain of Moses. So we, all we've got to do is, is climb to the top of the law and we'll be in the kingdom. Not so. Because you come over the top and there's a valley there. And that valley is the age of grace. That valley is the church age. Why would God put that distance there? Because God's heart is to see every single person saved. So He gives us the dispensation of the church. We walk in this valley, and and by the way, this valley is a place where the new wine flows freely. It's a place where we now get to wear the robes of righteousness in a spiritual sense before the coming kingdom, which leads me to the last the last point, the last mystery here. Mystery of grace, mystery of the church, and Jesus is also, I believe, talking about the mystery of the kingdom. Now listen carefully, because this is a subtle one. There's a coming dispensation. As I mentioned before, the millennial kingdom. When the Bible clearly says Jesus will return to rule and to reign in person from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Now I know there are people who disagree with that perspective biblically. All I'm doing is telling you what it says. And if you read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1-7, through 7, it says six times that Jesus will rule and reign from earth for a thousand years. So I'm not making anything up there. If you go back to the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah 24-23 says, The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, The Lord will be, be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one. Not, not Obama. Yeah. Not McCain. Not McCain. I I want to share something with you. I said this first service and I'm going to go on record. Because every other pastor gets to do it in all kinds of other churches, so I'm going to go on record and tell you who I'm voting for. And I'll tell you why. And I'm not telling you to vote this way. You make up your own minds. I'm voting for McCain-Palin, and here's why. There are all kinds of arguments out there. You've seen all the debates. You've watched on TV. You've seen what's happened. Here's my number one reason for voting for John McCain. Because when it comes to putting judges on the Supreme Court, he will fight Roe v. Wade, which to me is huge. And it's not even really being dealt with in this campaign. If Obama is elected, by his own words, by his own admission, he will put judges on the court who will keep Roe v. Wade in place, which keeps abortion going, and gang, that could last 50 years. So this presidency is possibly the most critical in our entire time. That's why I'm making my decision the way I am. You vote the way that your conscience leads you, but I'll tell you what, I hope you are voting based on your morals and not based on how much you think you're going to get back in taxes. 
Now, where were we? Oh, yeah. The mystery. The mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the church, the mystery of grace, the mystery of the kingdom. Here's the deal. Until that kingdom comes, that literal fulfillment of God's promises to the Jewish people, back historically, Jesus ruling and reigning from earth, we will rule and reign with Him as a part of His, uh, of His royal government. The Bible's clear on that too. I can give you all kinds of verses. Revelation 1, verse 6, Revelation 5, Revelation 20, on and on. But until that kingdom comes, the kingdom has already been set into motion. The spiritual kingdom is growing and expanding. Don't miss this. The kingdom is you. And the king, you know, there are a lot of cute babies around here, but don't miss this. It's okay. Is that outfit a, like a little ladybug? Oh, that is cute. <laughs> I, that is, that's incredibly cute. It's okay. I'm, I'm embarrassing Becky. I'm sorry. But that is... What? You got a cow and a ladybug. Holly, what, what, what are we wearing over here? Nothing special. Okay. I'm sorry. Just every now and then. I mean, I just noticed the ladybug. That's, that's adorable. Les, you got to get yourself yourself one of those. <laughs> okay, look, I'm, I'm, I'm messing up here. Let's get back to the point, because I don't want you to miss this. This is so incredibly important, because in, in the church, the teaching goes back and forth on this. There are those who say, kingdom now, dominionism. And dominionism is the, is the, the perspective, the ideology that the church, man, we're growing and we're getting better. And we're getting so filled with the Spirit that we're going to conquer the world. And once we've conquered the world and cleaned it up and taken over government and we've, we've, we've ruled the whole thing, then Jesus will come back and we'll hand it to Him and say, look at what we did. I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible teaches. Right. What the Bible teaches is that the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is growing. The kingdom is coming in a very real sense. It is going to be a literal rule and reign, a new dispensation that's going to blow our minds. We can't even conceive of what it's going to be like, gang. But right now, the kingdom is already growing. Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That the kingdom right now is being built in your faith and mine, it is growing in this world undetected. I mean, I look around, I don't see the kingdom, I don't see Jesus on the throne, I see Satan running rampant, I see sin everywhere, I see some big problems on the horizon. But the kingdom's growing. The kingdom is being built in and among us. If Christ is in you, you're both a citizen of the coming kingdom and in the future, which is coming in the future, and a recipient of the spiritual kingdom right now. The building of the kingdom of Christ in you. Colossians 1.13 tells us, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Another thing Sean said to me afterwards, he said, you know, I'm watching all these adoptions taking place in the bridge and all these births. And you know what's happening? It's exactly what, what, that's a great picture of what Paul is talking about. We're transferred from one place to another. A child might be raised in the kingdom of Ghana. 
but is transferred to the kingdom of the United States. A child is, is raised in the kingdom of Vietnam, but is being transferred into the United States. A, a child is born in the kingdom of Ethiopia and is being transferred citizenship-wise to become a full citizen of the United States. How much greater is it that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into God's glorious kingdom? The kingdom of light. You might say, well, okay, but if I'm transferred to the new kingdom, where is it? I don't quite see it. We're in the kingdom, but the kingdom is not here. We are in the kingdom, but the kingdom is not now. We are in the kingdom because the kingdom is growing in and among us. Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. How do you know if you've got the kingdom working in you? Righteousness, man. Peace. Joy. Not mourning and sorrow and disgruntled, difficult, hard living in this world. But joy. The joy of the Lord. Revelation 1.6 tells us He has made us to be a kingdom. Priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The kingdom is both coming soon and growing in you. That being the case, my fellow citizens, seek the kingdom and His righteousness. Final thing here, gang. Jesus, in this wonderful picture of the old cloth, the new cloth, the old wine and the new wine, notice the very last thing that He says. He hints at something wonderful here. He says, they, are put, they put the new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Both the old wine. The old wine's not poured out. The old wine is preserved in the old wineskins. The new wine is preserved in the new wineskins. Both are preserved. What are you saying? Old and new law. Law and grace. Israel and the church. Until that final day when the Lord ushers in His last dispensation, the final management of His household here on earth, the new heaven, the new earth, the new millennium will follow when all His children will be home There will be no more dispensations or confusion. We will all be there. And that will be a day for partying. That will be a great celebration. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Jesus, You're just amazing to me. I love Your teaching. I love hearing You put these things together. I'm so impressed. Lord, as you talk about the new wine, and that was your first miracle, and, and oh, wow. I just get excited by this. And I'm excited about the day to come when we will celebrate in the kingdom anew. When you will drink the wine with us once again that you have said you're going you're gonna to abstain from until then. We can't wait for that day. But Father, I'm, I'm praying this morning for my brothers and sisters for encouragement in the kingdom now in the kingdom in which we live. Though we see darkness all around, would you fill us up with the joy of the knowledge of the presence of Jesus Christ. That the bridegroom is with us. That you are walking with us, Lord Jesus, and have not abandoned us. And may we hear your voice as you whisper to us. May we walk in the way you direct us. And may we live out the love of the kingdom. And may we, Father actually see with our own eyes the kingdom expanding as people make decisions for Jesus. It's our great hope. In Jesus' name, Amen.